You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everybody. The spring season is upon us, which means lots of new shows are opening. And trust me, you don't want to show up to work without knowing what the New York Times thought of the show that opened the night before. You don't want someone to say, hey, did you read the review? And you not know what it was. So sign up on DiddyLikeIt.com or get the app in the iTunes store. Did he like it? It's your one-stop shop to finding out what the New York Times thought of the show as soon as the review comes out. Get the app today. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. I'm very excited about today's guest because I plan on learning a lot myself. When the root word of musical is music, you know that it's a crucial part of our business, which is why I got one of the most highly regarded experts in this area to talk to us today. Please welcome to the podcast the CEO of the newly formed The Musical Company, Mr. Sean Sahayden. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. Sean has actually done it all. He's a writer himself. He's produced. He's conducted. But he spent most of his time as an exec at companies specializing in the distribution of show music through a variety of sources. He was the senior VP of theater and catalog development for Warner Chapel Music, general manager and director of music and marketing for theatrical rights worldwide, music editor for MCI and RA. As a journalist, he wrote hundreds of articles, some of faculty of Tisch School of the Arts, yes, and produced over 20 cast albums, including the Grammy Award winning Hamilton. Which I hear did not do very well at all. It's, very, it's been a bit disappointing. I'm very sorry about that. Thank you. Thank you. And now he is the CEO of the musical company, which provides theatrical licensing, music publishing, and cash reporting services to theater writers and producers. So, Sean, first question: Which came first, your love of music or your love of the theater? 
Uh, musically first. My parents were in politics, and my father played trombone in dance bands and weekends. And grew up in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. An Irish Catholic kid, and so I sang in the church choir. And uh, then in fourth grade, I started playing trombone and singing in school. And then in middle school and high school, I was playing in the jazz band and the orchestra and singing in the chorus, a couple of choruses. So that was first. And then starting again in middle school, I started acting in shows. And I did uh, 13 shows in high school. And then I went to undergrad at Boston College for music and English, although I took a lot of theater courses to come to the English degree. But there I was focusing on, not so much in performance, but in composition and theory and arranging, the writing side in playwriting. And so when I was about to graduate, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, and I applied to I think, six different graduate programs, some in playwriting, some in music. And the one that was the combination of both of them was the Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program at Tisch. And this was in the dark old days of the first couple of years of the web. So schools didn't have websites. If you want to look up something, you would get the Guide, which was like a phone book, and page through microtype, you're trying to find this stuff. So it was a number of great things happened with it. It was a terrific, easy way to move to New York and have a community and a cushion and not immediately be trying to look for an apartment and find a job and all that. I had friends from school. My scholarship at, at BC was paid for by Wall Street Tycoons, and so some of them went and did that in the mid-90s and made their fortunes in the early days of the tech world. It's a small part of me that kind of wishes I'd done that first before I did what I did. But, but yeah, the experience at NYU was great. Uh, I did that for two years, and now I've taught there for 15. I teach theater uh, business and music business to the same program. So while I was in my... First year there, well, actually, at my senior year of college, the Sondheim Review magazine started uh, being published and um, never had a particularly wide circulation. But because I'd written my senior thesis at BC on Steve Sondheim, I wrote to them and said, you know, I'm moving to New York and I'll write articles for you. And it turned out that the publisher was in Chicago and the editor was in Wisconsin, so they didn't have a permanent person in New York. So, I very cleverly decided that a great way to do it would be to start doing interviews with music people that Steve worked with who don't normally get interviewed, like John Fortuna, the orchestrator, and Paul Giuliani, and other folks. And, um, and of course, for me, it was a way to meet, have an excuse to meet these people and hang out and talk, you know, musical theater and other. Kind of like a podcast. Kind of like that. But I was writing an article on Jonathan, and he was doing orchestrations for the Making Room Revival of Forum. And he invited me to go to the orchestra rehearsals. And so for two days during my spring break of my first year in grad school, I was sitting there with Jonathan, Steve, and the band, and nobody else. And again, having grown up in a political family and having no problem cold calling people or introducing myself, I thought, well, I'll with it. So I talked to Steve, and we had a nice conversation. And in my hubris, I sent him my thesis in the mail, and he very kindly read part of it and wrote a nice note and we started correspondence. And then when I finished grad school, I worked for G. Jansen for a little bit and then I worked at NTI for about a year. And my my main the main reason I hired me at NTI was because I knew Steve's stuff really well. I knew there were several shows where the scores needed to be edited and things like that. And so we continued that thing. And then uh, sort of simultaneously I was working as a music assistant for other folks. So Adam Gettle Michael Chalmers was uh, Ricky and Gord, and that whole gang was coming up in the mid-90s and doing a lot of development work at the public. Um, I was sort of the public's in-house 
music assistant copyist for most of their things for a couple of years here and there. And uh, got to work on uh, Missing Things with Adam and Wild Party with Michael John and Only Heaven and a couple other things with Ricky. And that gave me both a perspective on how to work with different writers, but also um, a facility with Finale, the music notation program, and the development production process and how these things work. By the late 90s, I guess, I was, I was doing music work for Sondheim on Wise Guys that became played between Bounce that became Roadshow, and uh, doing some, uh, I was the music director and orchestrator of a revised version of Do I Hear a Waltz that Joe Street and Oscar Lawrence worked on, which is a show that didn't work the first time or the second time, but it was a, an interesting experience to work with Arthur, interesting in the Chinese sense. I continued working with Steve on different projects, and then, I had gotten, over time, uh, I guess around 2001 or so, I've been doing a lot of different freelance music jobs as a conductor orchestrator. And um, on 9-11, I was on my way to Baltimore to do the drama game at, at uh, Center Stage in a production that turned out to be fun, but they were doing a master class of play with four people in it on the main stage, and the drama game, a musical with 25 people in it on the second stage. And so typical of those gigs, a lot of it was reorchestrating work that had originally been done for 25 or 30 pieces down to six. To give you an example, uh, once a year there, we did a uh, picnic dance number from Pajama Game. It's about 700 measures long, and that's in one. And it's basically the theme, the theme, the theme, the theme, the theme. And if you have 25 players and instruments to move that theme around on, it's great. If you have six, and one of them's playing the drums, even if you sometimes have a glockenspiel, it's a little tough. So, you know, there are challenges that you learn. And, and I think by being, by starting as a trombone player, I only had one class in arranging. Um, but I've played in a lot of, a lot of big band charts, and that's not dissimilar from the sort of classic Broadway sound. And if you play trombone, you don't get to know it very often. So you're constantly listening to what everybody else is doing and what different combinations of instruments sound like. So, anyway, I've been doing that work a lot. And uh, around the end of 2001, I really loved working on new shows or revivals where things were being significantly changed. But, you know, to have a life as a music director or orchestrator, you really had to be willing to take whatever comes along. So like you do as an actor or any number of other things. And I got more interested in producing. And so I went back to school to get an MFA in arts management. Uh, not because I necessarily wanted another degree, but... I found when I started applying for admin or executive jobs, they weren't taking me seriously, in part because I didn't have certain knowledge, and in part because people like to pigeonhole me. They like to say, oh, you're a creative person, and you know, when Steve Sondheim writes another show, you're going to go on and do that. I'm like, well, yeah, I probably will, but he does that about every 10 years, so, you know, no offense to Steve, but, you know, I need something to feed myself in the meantime. So I went back and did that, and the advantage of the Brooklyn College program is it's one of the, uh, it's either the oldest or the second oldest in the country, and it's uh, very inexpensive, and the classes are almost all at night, and so you not only can you work during the day, they want you to work during the day, either an internship or a job. And so I decided to sort of use some of my connections and sample around. So I worked for the Schubert's and Manhattan Theater Club. And then about halfway through, I had a full-time job as a development director at New York on the other side. And then my last semester, I got a job as the managing director at the Melting Pot Theater, a small off-Broadway company on the other left side, with Larry Hirschhorn, who's now a Tony commercial producer. But Larry had started the company, I guess, about 
six or seven years before I got there. And we used to joke that it was a company that did work by people of color run by a Jew and an Irish group. But we're actually having a, a 20th anniversary melting pot reunion uh, in a couple of years. So I did that for four years, and that was instructive because as a small nonprofit, we, you know, the tiny staff, we really had to do everything. I, you know, I had to immediately put into practice the things I had learned about budgeting and union negotiations and artist negotiations and casting and uh, space rental and all the stuff that's the not sexy part of theater, but the necessary part. Then a lot of fundraising and marketing obviously too. So I did that for four years and then uh, I started looking for uh, that was the company was sort of winding down and I started looking for a bigger place to work and I interviewed and was offered jobs at some regional theaters and I thought about leaving New York and I almost took one at a theater in Philadelphia and on my fourth interview they revealed that the theater was five million dollars in debt with no plan to get out of it. You you were that bland. And a very dysfunctional staff. And that that theater is no longer there, surprise, surprise. But I didn't take that, but I was offered Steve Spiegel was starting with Jeff Boaz worldwide and I'd worked with Steve at MTI years before. And he brought me on to run uh, music and materials and marketing at first, and then I became the general manager. And in part, he, he hired people who had done it before because we were launching with, I think it was 26 shows, many of which had not had major commercial productions. And so being able to get the materials for the shows ready to be sent to customers so they could actually do the shows was tricky because it was a, an intense editorial process. And I've done that, I've learned that to a high standard at MCI and RH, and so that was helpful there. So I did that for a couple of years, and then I was thinking about possibly moving on, and I got an email totally out of the blue on my old AOL account from uh, Dave Johnson, who had recently become the CEO of Warner Chapel, which is the music publishing arm of Warner Music. It said, hi, I'm Dave Johnson, the CEO, and we haven't had anyone running our theater department for years, which I knew I'd known the guy who had done it before. And so I produced some albums and helped work on some albums of Steve's and things like that. And he said, uh, I've asked around, you know, I've asked around and you're the guy people tell me I should hire. Are you free to have drinks on such and such a night? And I, and I wrote back and I said, actually, I wrote back and got caught in a spam filter and I didn't hear anything for a week. And I thought, well, there goes that. But eventually we made contact. I said, yeah, I'd love to, but I can't do it that night because I'm interviewing Steve in Princeton. And uh, little did I know that that phrase is what got me the job because he was looking to renew Steve's deal there and wanted somebody to renew his work and also a lot of the other things. So one chapel started as chapel 200 years ago in London, but primarily in the, in the 20s and 30s and 40s in New York, they signed all, almost all of the major musical theater writers who were also the pop writers at the time. So the Gershwin's, Cole Porter, Richard Rogers, Julie Stein, etc. and Steve. So they have this enormous catalog of American popular standards. Uh, but the, at the time when I was hired, they hadn't signed any new theater writers in about 15 years. And so after I was there for about six months, I said, look, I know all these writers who are great. We either don't have publishing deals and meet them or aren't happy with where they are, why don't you let me start signing people? So I did. And over the course of the next few years, I ended up signing about 40 people, including Bobby and Kristen Lopez and Tom Kitten, and Yorkie, and Lemon Miranda, and Lemon and 
that's large. I've never even a lot of other folks. So we built a, I built a current roster as well as the, the catalog. And I oversaw shootings of uh, Pistol Rental and uh, a lot of things that the other major publishers don't really focus on because they don't have that back catalog. You know, there's a lot of orchestral rental for Carol King until recently. Uh, and then in the last couple of years, we started um, investing in shows and developing shows. And the first one we did was Hamilton, which turned out well. So we ended up with the publishing, the record on Atlantic Records, and an investment in the show. That was a good way to start. But really, it's about it's about the relationship with the with the writer that leads to those things. You know, if the, if the writer doesn't trust you to represent them and and trust you both in a way that I think the advantage I have because of this background and these two sides of the business, I can talk to them about the music and I can also do the deal. And a lot of uh, agents and attorneys who specialize in theater don't know very much about music publishing. Uh, it's not their fault; almost nobody does, but it can be a very lucrative piece of the pie. So yeah, it's about it's about you know earning their trust both as as somebody who can talk to you about the songs or about the shows, but also about giving them the right deal on how to best exploit those things. So tell me, you you work with such a diverse group of composers, and that's what we're talking about this relationship thing. Obviously, you're very good at being able to navigate very different types of personalities. Tell me one thing that all musical theater writers have in common. Oh, well, that's easy. Well, it's not easy. It, it, it was, but it was interesting. It was interesting for me to learn over the years. As, as people progress in their careers, unless they have some deep personal anxiety, but as they progress in their careers, they get more comfortable with their facility as writers or as composers. You know, the blank page is always the hardest thing to start from, but once they sort of figure out what the project is and what the style of the tone of it is, the more experience they get, the better they are at pushing through and doing that. What I've learned that they all have in common, though, is once you get into a production process or a development process, a, a serious one, there it doesn't matter who you are, they all have intense insecurity about it. Not that they think, oh, I've done bad work, because they don't, and it would be foolish for them to think so. But there are so many moving parts, right? As soon as you move from a situation where it's on the page or it's sung in a demo to something where other people are doing it and then further people are directing it and designing it and orchestrating it and, you know, promoting it. We've all seen fantastic projects that were great in a reading or a workshop go terribly awry when they get to a full production or things that were pretty rocky then suddenly come together. I forget the exact quote that the Jeffrey Rush's character in Shakespeare in Love keeps saying, it'll all come out in the end, something like that. It all works out. Sometimes it does, but most of the time it does. But really that, that thing in common is, you know, no matter what style you're in, no matter what facility you have as a highly trained composer or a songwriter who writes into, used to be a tape recorder, now it's a digital recorder or a because you once you start handing over your work to other people, they all get insecure about it. And so there's always some level of parenting is a long word, but you know, supporting that. And uh, even with people who know far better than you do and have done this, you know, for decades. But uh and it's also it's tricky because you can't just be a Pollyanna. You can't just be, oh that was awesome, that was great, that was fantastic. There are a couple scenarios in which that's required. You know, first preview maybe. But you're of no value to the 
to the writer as a representative or as a friend or a client because you can't be honest with them. And if all they hear is you're great, you're wonderful, it just becomes, you know, sort of a Hollywood cliche. I think it's knowing those, those topics when you need to do that. And we've all, you know, met that to different degrees of success. We've tried to them many times in early modern years, but, you know, occasionally you say the wrong thing at the wrong time. Everybody does. But, uh, yeah, there's, when they're at a point where it's the receptive to wanting to hear that is when you figure out that point and then be honest with you. So you mentioned that not many people know about music publishing. I will certainly raise my hand and say I'm one of those people that know very little about it. Explain to me like I was a fifth grader. <laughs> no, my, my, my sons are seven and nine and I've, I've, I've tried to explain to them a couple times. So the, in broad strokes, and there are nuances to this, but in broad strokes, there are sort of two sets of, as musical theater writer, there's sort of two sets of rights. There's grand rights, which is the live stage rights in your whole show. So all the songs, the book, everything you've written. And those rights are generally controlled by the author, well, they're always controlled by the author, and then your agent works on your behalf. You know, the sort of central tenet of theater writing in the Broadway Guild is that you own your own copyright and you option or license that right for, under certain circumstances to someone else to produce it. So that's the whole show. Within that, the songs themselves have what are sometimes called small rights, although that sounds pejorative, but it's the smaller piece of it. And it's the, these two words commonly in music publishing, disposal and exploit, that sound pejorative also, but it's not what they mean. When you dispose of rights, it's, it's, it's not giving them away or throwing them away. And exploiting them in, in the best sense. But the idea is to, to take those songs and to figure out how best to, to use a, a, a terrible common term, not monetize it. So, while the show is in development and in its first production, the producer of the show has a lot of control over that as well, or a lot of input. There are certain common things that you do that tie, there are music publishing rights that tie into the grand rights, like past recordings, or piano vocal folios of songs, or TV commercials for the show. Typically, the producer of the original production has broad promo rights and uses of the songs to promote the show because it all feeds the the machine. Right? After that initial production, or after the initial producer's rights have expired, somewhat similar to the way that writers then make a deal with a licensing house, like musical company, or tour producer, what have you, they're also, although we tend to like to make the, the publishing deal earlier than that, that's the time when we can start figuring out even more ways to use the songs. While the show is not, you know, when you have a hit show, Hamilton or Book of Mormon or once or some of the other things I worked on, you get a lot of requests to use those songs in different ways. And generally, the, the original show producer doesn't allow you to use it in a beer commercial or a TV show that has nothing to do with the song. You know, we got a lot of glee in its first few seasons. Did very well by by us by using a lot of theater songs in a generally positive way. You decide what you like about the artistic value, but. To give you an example, um, in the first season, Don't Rain on My Parade got downloaded 250,000 times as a single. I would be willing to bet 249,000 of those people never heard that song before. So, that's cool. But anyway, it's, it's finding ways to exploit that. So, the, the music publishing rights break down into certain categories of how you exploit those songs. 
So there's mechanical, which is called that because it was originally in 1912, 1905 and 1912, it was mechanical reproduction of sound, so the gramophone, right? Suddenly, you're not just dealing with music being put out on sheet music, you're dealing with recordings. So you have to have that sort of one one right that you could grant, and that could be either a past album or cover recordings or whatever. And that mechanical right is now both physical and digital. So physical on CD or LP and digital on downloads and streaming. You have print rights and sheet music or arrangements or festival or band, chorus, all of those things. You have performance rights, which are generally licensed through foreign rights organization like ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, where they collect on songwriters and publishers' behalf in a, in a large way various kinds of public performance. And that includes concerts in venues from 54 below the Carnegie Hall, uh, it also includes TV broadcasts. And in foreign countries, it includes use of movies. In the U.S., for whatever reason, there isn't a performance right for songs and anything. There is, however, is a synchronization right. So that's another category where you're using a song with video, whether it's TV or film or advertising or video games. A few years ago, we were licensed a bunch of Noel Howard songs to Bioshock, the video game, which turned out to be pretty lucrative. It was a big hit. And it was set in sort of an underwater dystopian future, but there were hints of the 30s and 40s in them, so they wanted creepy songs playing out of the radio as your characters wandering through things and doing these water period stuff. So you never know when things would pop up. It's a complicated world in music publishing world. So let me, let me just understand this a little. I mean, how, give me an example of how lucrative can it be? Well, the, the biggest source of revenue for in music publishing for theater writers by percentage is still mechanicals. It's still cast albums. And even if they don't sell super well, generally the writers are making between $1 and $2 a, an album, or about 10 cents a song. And there is revenue from streaming. You know, different sources pay different rates. If you have something, obviously if you have a huge hit like a book of Mormon or Hamilton, then you make a lot of money because there's a lot of purchases and downloads and streams and fun. So I would say for most theater writers, that's probably 50% of their music publishing income. Performance, depending on how often their songs get done in concerts and, um, and TV, is probably the next biggest chunk. Sheet music in its various forms is probably next. And then synchronization. Synchronization can be very lucrative. The, the advantage, I mean, the fees have come down a bit in the, in the last five years, but you know, a major placement in a feature film or a prominent performance in a TV show can be anywhere from twenty-five to half a million, twenty-five thousand to half a million. So let me under, understand this a little bit. So talk me through this part, and I want you to put on your producer hat a little bit here, okay. uh, which is so I come up with an idea for a musical mm-hmm. where I get the rights to a movie. And I go out and look for authors, and I get these authors to do this uh, musical for me. They write a song for that musical that they would not have written before. We do it. Maybe the show does okay. Probably doesn't recruit. Most shows don't recruit. They do a publishing deal. The song is used in a major national commercial. And just so I understand this correctly, the producer, the investors that haven't made any money, don't get a piece of that publishing deal, right? Correct. Do you think that's fair? Well, it really depends on what you're paying up front, right? 
So if you're going to go by the studio model and say, well, they came up with this because we brought them in to do this show and we paid them some money, how much money do you pay? So to give you a comparison on a grander scale, the standard in the movie business is if you write songs for a feature film musical, particularly animated, Disney has kept an, an ironclad precedent since 1927 or something, and they had to license one wish upon a star for Pinocchio. Walt Disney got so angry about that, about having to pay royalties, that he said, all right, from now on, we're going to have all the songs written for our movies, and we're going to own them all. So, in some cases, I don't know, the Sherman Brothers may disagree in the early years, but, you know, they were paying a living wage. I mean, they weren't paying extraordinarily well. Now, you know, they pay pretty well up front. Uh, in some cases, very well, depending on your level of success. Especially your level of success with Disney movies. You do, you have a great one, and you do another one, and you pay a lot more. But, they pay a lot up front. You know, you're talking about at least $25,000 per song sometimes well in excess of $100,000 per song. For that payment, they own the copyright and the administration of that copyright. You still get paid your writer's share. So there's a each song with the writer's share and the publisher's share. In the old days, when you signed a publishing deal, you sold your publisher's share and the admin rights of the song to the publisher. You still got paid 50 cents in the dollar, but they controlled it. There were very little, in the old days, there were very few approvals. So if they wanted to use it in whatever, they got to. And Disney still has that model. Disney exploits the heck out of all their stuff. The other studios ask for that deal, but in more recent years, at least I've been very successful in negotiating them off that because the upfront fees are a lot less. So if, you, if you're going to do an original movie musical or even an adaptation of something that the studio is offering or what have you, but it's, we're not talking about like going from an animated thing to a live thing or most of We're talking about a new product, in a sense. Unless we're really going to pay that hundred grand a song or something like that. My argument is, you know, the reason you're hiring this person is you want their talent. You, and, and in many cases, they're hiring now because of the, you know, the model generated by Nathan Ashman and Nathan Schwartz and Bobby Piston that, you know, they want the theater expertise. They want somebody with the ability to write a dramatic song, not just a pop song. They want a pop song. Millions of people can actually do that. Not that that's easy either, but it's a different skill set. So, my argument is unless you're going to pay that kind of money up front, you don't know. And the reality is in theater, even though a lot of writers are starting artists and they may really appreciate that five or ten grand, first of all, I don't know anyone who pays that kind of money up front for a song. When they pay it for a score, you know, that's like an off Broadway option fee. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. What I will say is, on cast albums, provided the album sells well and recoups the recording costs, which, frankly, is, I would say, rare is probably the wrong word, but infrequent, because there's been a lot to have, uh, depending on recording costs, we'll get into that in a minute. But, provided it recoups the cost, the, the writers and the producers are then paid an artist royalty, which is similar to what you'd be paid if you were, say, a rock band and you were signed to a record label. The record label fronts you half a million dollars to go in the studio and record your album. They recoup that half a million dollars and then they start paying you royalty, right? So then the, generally that, that percentage, which can be 15 to 20% often, uh, is split like a subsidiary, right? 60% to the writers, 40% to the 
producers. So the producers do benefit if the album does well. But no, you don't get a piece for sheet music unless some recently some producers have gotten it because they have bought out the key art in the show, and in exchange for using the key art, they get a sometimes a five percent override on the songbook because of the use of the key art. Because of course you want you know the sheet music company wants to sell it based on popularity of the show or whether the show is super popular or not. At least it's the way that this, the consumer is recognized. Let's let's slide over to the cast on because you brought that up because that's the other area I think that's gotten very interesting over the past few years. When I started working in the business, it seems like every every show had a cast on. They were all doing major, major music companies and they never made money on paper. They were all these recording costs like Hollywood Council Monster Studio. Then it seemed that a lot of cast albums were independent, independent, and all of a sudden they were making some money. Artists were getting money quicker, shows were getting money quicker. Right. And now all of a sudden we're back to this place of, as you said, they're rare. What recruitment is rare? So is it just the changing music industry that's done this? What what sure. happened? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, certainly in the up through the early two thousands, there were the, the major labels would get a lot of cast albums and. Those divisions generally worked on the principle not dissimilar from some of the other divisions of the major label, where if you have a bunch of big hits, that pays for some of the rest. Not indirect costs, but it gives the company confidence that, okay, well, if we do 10 albums and two of them are huge smash hits and four of them do okay, the rest that are not is sort of the profits for the company is, is off that end. That was the general attitude. And some some divisions of major labels still work that way. But the internet kind of ruined it for everybody. The the total and I, I say this because I didn't work in the music part of the business then, but I've talked to a lot of people who did, and there's actually a great book that I recommend people read called Appetite for Self Destruction, the Record Industry in the Digital Age. Came out about seven years ago, maybe, it was written, I think by a former editor of Rolling Stone. And he, he tracks the, the shift every time the record business changed from the media. So LP to cassette to CD to digital. And every time the record industry grossly resisted going to the new media. I remember a story that was in there about how they were saying, okay, well now we're in the, in the early 80s, now we're going to make CDs and we need to renovate this factory and it has to be clean rooms and things like that because the CD process was different there. And they said, well, we just spent millions of dollars building this thing for LPs. We're, you know, so, you know, the, the problem is the record business got greedy in the, in the 80s. They, they, CDs cost a lot less to make. You know, they, that company recouped the money that they lost in renovating the factory in like a year or two. CDs were cheaper to make, but they charged the consumer more than they did for an LP. And they paid the artist less. Not the songwriters, but the recording artists. And they got everyone to buy what they already owned again. So they got greedy, and then when it got to be the late 90s, early 2000s, and uh, broadband internet, and MP3 compression, and peer-to-peer file sharing all came together at the same time in sort of the perfect storm of potential piracy, they, instead of creating something easy to use like the iTunes store, which took another few years, their attitude was why they got rid of the single. There's no more cassette singles, there's no more CD singles. Certainly no 45s. You know, somebody really wanted the one song, they made them buy a $20 CD, and they were angry. And, you know, I remember having that feeling myself. So, that was part of it. 
you know, it took them so long to get to something like the iTunes store that there was a lot of consumer frustration. Now, past albums are always unusual because it's, we tend to sell to super fans who are already into theater or to people who've seen the show who want to experience it again in some way. And it's still album driven rather than track driven. Even Hamilton, which has sold a ton of tracks, has sold a lot more albums. Um, or streamed a lot more albums. You know, over time, uh, Universal, which has Deco, which has a catalog that includes things like Mamma Mia, Lemuel's, Wicked, still make them a lot of money, uh, and Andrew's catalog. Um, they did away with their cast album division a few years ago. They put out a few hour cast albums since then, but not many. Sony, which had bought RCA and BMG, consolidated all of its catalogs with Columbia into Sony Masterworks Broadway. They've still got a massive catalog, and maybe one or two a year. And Warner does, aside from the, the recent two at Atlantic with Hamilton here and Hanson, all of the Warner labels collectively have maybe only done one year. So, yeah, the indie, the indie labels came along because they could show a little bit cleaner accounting. They had a lot lower overhead and in terms of the ongoing cost. But, you know, you still faced, cast albums are still faced with two major financial challenges. One is that the actor's equity rate for cast albums, which is a week's pay for every eight hours in the studio. So, I'll, I'll give an example about naming names. We recorded a revival, uh, prominent revival of, uh, a well-known musical about maybe six or seven years ago with two movie stars in it. And the but it was a small production of a small band that New York stated. And the album probably should have cost about $150,000. But because the stars were being paid $35,000 to $40,000 a week each, it costs $250,000. So, the, problem, the main problem with that is that rate is not negotiated by the people who have to pay that money. It's a rider on the actor's equity contract with the league. And both equity and the league have other priorities than the cast album rider. Now, the reality is, if producers wise up, and the league wised up, they realize that since they're often paying half of the cost of the cast album in most scenarios, sometimes all. But if that were a more reasonable rate, that'd be great. The other challenge is, and I say this as a former orchestrator and somebody who loves orchestrators, obvious, that they get a reuse fee for the recording of the, the orchestrator copies, which are tens of thousands of dollars, and doesn't often require new work. In fact, if new work is required, they get paid more. Now, there's certainly arguments we made to say, okay, the reason people are, one of the reasons people are enjoying this album is they're listening to our stations, and absolutely. But both Equity and Aerotune's attitudes toward this particular part are basically presuming that either all cast albums make money, and so therefore their members should cash in now on a buyout basis and respect to the royalty base, or that, you know, there's less work and so, you know, guess what? But it's, it needs to be fixed, or ultimately it's going to drive the thing out of business. And the reality is, as you know, for a new musical, you have to have a recording or the show will never be done again, because nobody can read a score who's evaluating these things. And so, if they don't have some record of it, they're not going to be able to decide whether they're going to produce the show. So, you know, that's why a lot of commercial producers have started paying for the albums because, you know, they have a vested financial, they, on behalf of themselves and the investors, they have a financial interest in the future of the show and subsidiary rights. So, 
Yeah. So that's the perfect transition to your, your new gig. So the CEO of the musical company, which is going to provide cats album services, publishing, and theatrical licensing, like MTI, like theatrical rights worldwide, like, like all these others. What is going to make the musical company unique? How is it different from all others? Well, I think it's a few things. We uh, are starting from uh, an experienced staff who've done this before. Uh, we're starting with a catalog basis of Andy Lloyd Webber's work. Never heard of him. Yeah, he's, he's, you know, I think maybe in a year or two, he tries really hard. And Marvin Hamish's work as well, uh, on, on the publishing side. But I think there's, having, you know, started to AW when we didn't have that was more challenging than, than we do. But I think the interesting thing about Andrew is not only is he, uh, obviously phenomenally successful over a long period of time, but he's also been a producer of his own work. And so he understands that and has a lot of savvy in that area. And so it isn't just representing a great catalog, it's representing a great catalog that has been well exploited for yeah, so in the best sense for quite a while. And my goal is to, and when I took the job, uh, Andrew said, you know, I don't just want you to do my work, I want you to do what you did at one and other places and sign other writers, other shows, other albums. And so, you know, that's my goal. And we're, you know, very shortly we'll be announcing album release and some publishing deals and some other things. And I think there are, there's a great opportunity there. I think, you know, I, I highly respect the competition that we have, uh, especially in the theatrical licensing world. A lot of them do really great jobs, and I'm friends with most of them. But competition is good, especially competition where the two companies that own the musical company are both billion-dollar companies. So not that we're not going to make you know smart deals. It isn't just about spending money, but it's about being able to focus attention on the works that we sign. We don't have 400 titles. Um, you know, right now we've got a couple of dozen, and we'll be adding on to that. But the goal is not to instantly grow to something with foreign titles. The goal is to uh, be strategic about what we're signing. Um, and that doesn't mean just uh, big hits. Big hits are great. But sometimes big hits are not necessarily appealing to the widest possible licensing that it happens. You know, you can have shows that, that are so family-centric that professional theaters don't want to do them very often unless it's the holiday show. You can have shows that are so mature in their content and the style that, you know, high schools don't want to, to do them. So finding things that have a broad licensing appeal is great, but it's also about finding things that, finding shows that aren't necessarily big Broadway hits that appeal to, to a particular licensing segment. And the thing that we can offer, I would say, with confidence more than the other licensing companies is we've been talking about the music. And, uh, and we can, we can represent, if they choose to do the deal with us, we can also represent the publishing in the report. And having, uh, not just Andrew, but Concord Bicycle behind us on the other side and taking advantage of their infrastructure and music publishing and bicycle and, and recorded music with Concord. The interesting thing with Concord is they don't compete in the front line pop business. So they're not looking to sign the next Katy Perry or Taylor Swift or Beyonce. They have a number of labels in a number of different genres, and we're now going to be their theater label. They try, they strive to be the best in those genres that they're, that they're in. They have great market share in that way. So we'll be getting that as well. And I think, you know, it's producing past albums in 
the smartest way we can, not just economically, but in the way that we market them, you know, and, and see how that's changed. We don't just do, you know, food blast and at the times, you know, it's, it's all about digital, obviously. And it's about driving them toward, uh, payless and sharing and other things, legal sharing, <laughs> so they buy records. Advice to a young writer out there who's just starting out about how they get noticed in today's market and get the attention of someone like you? Well, yeah, I'll be honest. There are very few times when I've signed somebody who has not had a production of any kind, either one or a swimsuit. So you have to get produced and you have to have at least one show that I can do something with. So it has to be professional quality. Um, you know, I've been talking to them on you for a long time. I see a lot of writers and shows in development. There's very talented people and great ideas, but what I always tell them is, you know, never send anyone on your first draft or preferably your second draft. Because you don't often, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty patient. I'll go to see something more than once, uh, in the, in the course of the development. But some people won't. And some licensing agencies or publishers wait until the thing is a hit and then make a movie. And, you know, that'll cost you. What I like to do is, is preferably find people early in their careers and work with them on the development of that with their agents and, and, and their collaborators and figure out what's the best path that they can choose. Cause having worked on the production side as well and, and having conducted the theaters around the country, you know, I have a pretty good sense of what different theaters are looking for. And, and also, on the licensing side, you know, because we interact with other theaters licensing rights to existing shows, we get to know what they're looking for. For the production. Because it's very difficult, it's very difficult to exploit, uh, songs or recordings of songs without a production to drive it. You know, theater writers are not pop writers. Uh, it's a whole different ballgame. And they're people who've crossed over from the comedy in one hand. Alright, my last question, my, Genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and says, God, you helped hold the hands of so many composers throughout the years, carrying them along the way, as you said. And uh, the genie wants to thank you by granting you one wish. What's the one thing about Broadway that drives you so crazy that would have you breaking your baton over your knee, screaming and yelling, hanging up the phone, that you would ask this genie to wish away? Well, what I tell my students is the thing that will kill your career faster than anything is a sense of entitlement. And just because somebody gets a piece of the pie doesn't really mean that there's less pie for you. There's a lot of pie. There may be less pie than there was in 1950, but there's a lot of pie. So perhaps killing that attitude would be it. But if there were, if we're going to talk about, you know, because most, I would say most things that are difficult are people getting in their own way. There's so many moving parts and so many agendas and so many things that need to task that need to be accomplished. But, but, uh, but if you're going to say if there's a business aspect change that would make things a lot better, I would say, you know, that producers need to respect the music part of musicals and the musicians need to understand how difficult it is to raise the money to do this stuff. And I'm not picking on the musicians' union per se, I'm just saying in a broader sense that we had a discussion around the music uh, committee at the Bombus Guild. We had a composer orchestrator discussion about a year ago, and it was amazing 
that very experienced, successful composers, very experienced, successful orchestrators who are along in our artistic endeavors. When we started talking about business issues, it wasn't even that they were arguing. There were vast swaths of knowledge that were unknown by both sides. Even people have been doing it for decades. And I think a greater understanding of that is would be most helpful. Communication, always the key to success. Thank you so much for this. This is like a master class for me in all the different areas. Publishing, cast albums, licensing, that that trinity right there can mean a lot for authors, which is so important because they can then write their next show and their next yeah. show. And of course for producers and investors as well. So thank you so much for that. Thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. We will see you next time. Don't forget to get the Did He Like It app available in the iTunes store or sign up on DidHeLikeIt.com so you can find out and be the first to know what the New York Times thought of every single new show that opens this spring. DidHeLikeIt.com Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.